Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our Bible study series examines a specific part of God's Word of Truth. We pray that through this study your faith will be built up and you will grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word through what you hear. This is the Burden and Blessing Podcast and our continuing series on the book of Genesis. I'm Pastor Mark Tiefel. Joining me today to discuss the chapters that we're looking at is Nathaniel, Pastor Nathaniel Mayhew. We are at Genesis chapter 4 today, and we're going to branch into chapter 5 as well. And we get into um, some interesting thoughts and interesting details today after the first three very important chapters of Genesis that lay out the foundation of mankind we're starting to see some historical details about um, the first people that lived on earth. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you for joining me today to walk us through these chapters. Uh, chapter four in Genesis begins with a pretty familiar account for many people involving Cain and Abel, the first uh, two sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, walk us through this familiar Bible story. Many of us learned this in Sunday school early on. Help us to see some of the important details here um, through the story that God gives us about Cain and Abel. Sure. Well, good to be with you, Mark. As you pointed out, this is a very familiar Bible story. A lot of people that don't know much about the Bible are going to be probably familiar with the names Cain and Abel from Sunday school or from a Bible story book that they had when they were kids. But hopefully we can get into some of the details that we don't talk about in Sunday school and maybe even don't touch on because these are not chapters that we often hear even in church on Sunday. You know, we get a lot of chapters that we read through in our scripture readings, but uh, these chapters, Genesis 4 or 5, those are not real common ones for studying in scripture readings or having sermons on. There is a, an important connection between chapter four and what we considered last time in chapter three. The opening verse of chapter four says, now the man, and that's the, the Hebrew word therefore, Adam, the man or Adam had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. I, I want to stop there, first of all, Mark, because there's a, this is an interesting, again, this is not coming out in Sunday school, but what happens here is we have the birth of Cain, and there's an interesting phrase. We have what Eve tells us, I have gotten a man child. We have this phrase, and with the help of the Lord, most of our English Bible translations are going to have something in there. Now, I'm using the New American Standard Bible. If you have the New King James Version or something like that in front of you, the New King James Version will put in italics words that are not included in the Hebrew. Now, they don't always get everything right. So my translation has that in italics. And in the Hebrew, you have to be a little bit interpretive. But a better way to maybe understand this is, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Now, Luther took this verse and he understood this to mean that what Eve was confessing is that when Cain was born, her firstborn son, that it was the fulfillment of God's promise made to them in Genesis chapter three, that that firstborn son was the promised seed of the woman, the savior. And if we take a look at the names of the two boys, remember that in the Old Testament, we're going to see this as we go on in the book of Genesis, names actually mean something. So the word 
that's given to this child, Cain, literally means acquisition. I have acquired something, the Lord. And then later on, when his brother Abel is born, we have a change. Abel's name means emptiness or nothing. Now, I've, I've told my kids that. You know, imagine if I would have called you empty, you know, or nothing. You're worthless. You know, that would be a that would be a name that you'd carry with you for the rest of your life. But it describes the feeling of your parents at that time when this birth took place. And I think that the two names of the two boys boys there sort of reinforce Luther's thinking on this verse that when that child was born, they were thinking God had already fulfilled his promise to crush the head of the serpent, to send that child who would be the savior, who would be born of the woman, in this case, Eve, not Mary later on. But then they also realized over time that Cain was not the fulfillment, which is where we get that name, that Abel emptiness later on, that he, he, they were going to have to wait longer for, to see the fulfillment of that, of that plan of salvation. So some interesting thoughts on the opening verses. It's a very interesting thought right away on the opening verse. And what's what I find interesting about that too is that the word Lord is not just the word like master or ruler. It is the name of God. And that, that it's Yahweh in the Hebrew, which actually comes up before the Lord gives himself that name later on in Exodus, which I find very interesting um, that that this if if this is what Eve said you know, that she had an awareness of God's name before he revealed it in the scriptures to us. And it is an interesting thought to consider of what did she, what did she think when Cain was born? Uh, moving forward in the chapter, getting into the actual, you know, substance of the story between Cain and Abel. I think many of our listeners probably remember this, the details of the story. Well, um, Cain murdering Abel, um, the first, the first, you know, taking of life in the, the new world that God had created, you know, showing us really uh, a direct result of the devastation of sin entering the world. Remember the Lord promising Adam and Eve, there will, you will surely die. There will be death that enters. What a graphic and personal way that they learned that lesson when their two children, um, you know, ended up contributing to the story that led to the first death. Uh, but help us understand you know, the details, what led up to this? What was it that caused this event to happen with Cain and Abel that caused Cain to react this way to Abel? Because there's a spiritual element there, not just involving the effect of sin, but what was it that happened, especially in Cain's heart that led up to this? I would guess that most of our listeners are familiar with the the concept of the story, since it is a very familiar one. We're told that Cain and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord. So again, like you mentioned, Mark, that word Lord, the Lord uses that as a description of himself in Exodus, but already here we're using that as a description of who the Lord is. The same thing is true of the sacrifices. In the book of Exodus, after the Lord calls his people out of Egypt, he institutes sacrifices, but those things were present and taking place already here long before that. So this idea of worship, of giving to the Lord out of thankfulness for everything that he has given to us, that was very much of a part of these early believers of early humanity that God had created. And there are a lot of misconceptions about how and why when it comes to this account. For example, we're told in the, the second part of verse two that Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we have one who's a farmer, the other one's a rancher in essence. So some people have said that the reason that God 
he accepted the one sacrifice and despised the other was because of the type of offering that was brought. Later on, God would require blood sacrifices, which is what Abel was bringing. He was bringing flocks, and it was a blood sacrifice as opposed to a fruit or uh, a you know from the earth sacrifice. But if we look at the verses here, we realize it has nothing to do with the type of sacrifice. We come back to vocation again, Mark. We had talked about this in chapter two with Adam and the, the calling that the Lord had given to him, whether the Lord gives us the, the calling as a shepherd or as a, uh, a rancher or a farmer, that's not important. What is important is what do we do and what, where is our heart in response to what God has given us and blessed us with? And so when we take a look at this account the key is in verse four. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. The difference wasn't that Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain brought a, a fruit or a from the earth sacrifice. The difference was Abel was confessing he was giving back to the Lord of the best of what God had given to him. The firstlings, the first group, and those that were the best. You think about Malachi and how the Lord said to the people back, now this is thousands of years in the future. He says, you bring me your lame and you're wounded and you're beat up. And he says, and you expect me to, to accept those. He said, take those to your governor and see what he thinks of those things. That's not what I re require. And remember that the, the sheep, the lambs of the Old Testament at that, that period, they were to picture Jesus. You know, that was why God required those things of them. But here Abel is giving from his heart out of love for what God has given, the best of what God had given. He was giving that back to the Lord, trusting in the Lord and the fact that he would provide for him. And a helpful commentary on that is Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter in the New Testament, where it tells us that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. So I think that's an important thing for us to, to start off with is that it wasn't a difference between the type of offering that was given, but the, the place from which the offering was given from the heart, as opposed to just going through the motions and doing what you thought was the right thing to do because, and that, and that you'd be accepted by it. The Lord says, no, I want something that comes from the heart. Uh, David in Psalm 51 says, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's, the, that's what the Lord is looking for, is a, a, an offering from the heart. So we see elements of worship here already in Genesis chapter 4. And I think we're going to see some indications later on at the end of the chapter as well. that the, This is a chapter about worship in some ways. It has things to, to speak to us about that. Now, after we see the seeds already planted in Cain's heart from the offering that ultimately led to him murdering his brother. They were there, this discontentment, um, perhaps this jealousy. There was something wrong in Cain's heart uh, on both accounts. Now, as we, as we move forward from the, the nature of the offering that each gave, we see the Lord offer a warning to Cain, but then we also see a reaction after Cain murders Abel. Walk us through both those things. What's the Lord's warning to Cain, but then also what is the fallout of what Cain decided to do? I think this is really the key of this, of this section that you're right, Mark, the Lord 
he understands what Cain is going through. He understands the feelings that he's that he's he's frustrated with, the maybe envy as we take a look at some of these verses that he he realizes that his offering is not being accepted, but Abel's is. So there's this envy of his brother. And so the Lord reaches out to him. He reaches out to Cain and he says, why are you angry? And he warns him in verses six and seven. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it or rule over it. This is the same word that was used in Genesis chapter three, verse 16 uh, in connection with Eve, this idea of rule over. And so the Lord gives a, a warning to, to Cain. He says, I don't want you to fall into this. Be aware of the problem of sin that starts inside the heart. When we talk about sin, Mark, we don't talk about just things that are on the outside, but that sin starts in the heart and then it, it roots there. And as James tells us, once it has rooted and it springs forth, it brings forth death. So the Lord is warning Cain. But Cain doesn't heed the Lord's warning. He kills his brother, Abel, and the Lord comes back to him again. And again, the Lord is seeking, just like we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord is seeking repentance. And so he asks Cain, the Lord knows what's happened. He knows what happened to Abel, but he comes to Cain and he says, where is Abel, your brother? So there's an opportunity, an opportunity that the Lord is giving to Cain to, to come clean, to confess, to realize I've done something that I shouldn't have done, but he doesn't. We see the Lord's mercy there, don't we? That he could have struck Cain down in his judgment. He had every right to do that, but he comes to him and he wants Cain to learn this lesson. And imagine how the Lord's heart must have ached for what happened to Abel in that sense of the, the sorrow associated with that. Uh, but he comes to Cain and wants him to learn through this as well. He wants to help Cain through this as well. And he comes to, you see an example of the Lord's mercy in that. Absolutely. And, and this moves forward then into what we would call the ministry of the keys in the New Testament. You know, that this is always God's desire. He seeks the lost. Think about Jesus and you know, searching after that one sheep as opposed to the 99 that have not gone astray, this is always God's desire. And, and we see this in a personal way with the Lord himself reaching out to Cain. And as you pointed out, Mark, he could have struck him dead, but he, he protects him. Throughout all of this, we're told that he puts a mark on Cain. Mark, at first, Cain says, I can't handle this. This burden is too much for me to bear. People are going to find me and they're going to kill me when they find out what I did to my brother. And the Lord says, no, he says, I will put this mark on you and I will, I will protect you. And I will say, vengeance will be taken on anybody who takes your life. That is not theirs to, to take. Uh, that is for me. And, and basically I'm, I'm letting you go. You've got to live with what you have done. And, and again, the Lord wanted to lead him to repentance through that opportunity. So a lot of times we hear about capital punishment, uh, the Genesis 9 passage that we use in the catechism, whosoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. We see that the Lord does not put that into practice here early on. It would, it would be after the flood that the Lord would institute that idea of, of what we would call capital punishment today. So uh, a very interesting part. I think it is very important to see here, as you pointed out, the Lord's desire for the salvation and the repentance of Cain and giving him every opportunity to come to that point. I always appreciate that connection that we've seen so far in the chapter of 
we see thoughts about worship when it comes to giving the offering, but then that moves into a, basically a discourse on repentance. And, you know, that is the highest form of worship, really. That's really what we're there to do when we gather around God's word. Giving our offerings is very important. But if we haven't confessed our sins and received the Lord's forgiveness, our gifts to God are going to come from an empty heart as well, just as Cain's did. And, and the motivation there is going to be incorrect. So, you know, it's a familiar Bible story, but what you also see is a lot of very good application to our lives for practical uh, practicing of our faith. The chapter continues by going through sort of some of the individuals in the family line of Cain. Um, you know, that's, this might seem on the surface, just a, a random list of people's names, not really of great importance, but there are some important things for us to pick up as we read uh, through the family line of Cain, which is kind of how the rest of the chapter goes through and ends. What are some of those important considerations for us as we think about the way the Lord describes the descendants of Cain? Mark, like you said, a lot of times we have a tendency when we're reading through the book of Genesis to skip over what we consider to be the boring parts, you know, and especially if there are names in there and the names or locations are hard to pronounce. And this might be one of those sections in, in Genesis that we would be prone to skip over verses 17 down to 24. But one of the things that we have to remember, if the Lord put this in the Bible, if he inspired this and preserved this over the centuries, there's a reason why that is there. And that's also going to include the next chapter, which includes all of the genealogies, the, the names of the family line. And so a good question for us to ask is, why did God put this here? Why did he include this in the scriptures? And I think wrestling with that question with some of these odd verses of the Old Testament or even in the New Testament can be really helpful. Uh, a good exercise for us to think about what is God trying to show me or us today through these verses. So we have, I wanna just highlight just a couple of verses here. The descendants of Cain, as you pointed out, he has a, a grandson, well, it's, it's a little further down the line, Lamech. And Lamech has three children. So verse 20 says that Ada, gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And then it talks about their sister, uh, Nema. Now, why would God put this in here? These names of these individuals, and I think a big reason is that it points out the common misconception that people have in our world today, that people from ancient times were idiots. They were Neanderthals. They had no common sense. They didn't know how to do anything whatsoever. We're in the fourth chapter of Genesis, Mark. We're early on in the history of humanity. And what Moses is recording for us here is that very early on, human beings demonstrated huge amounts of intelligence. We've got three different categories. We have the father of those who raised livestock. They dwelled in tents and raised livestock. So these people were building themselves houses of some sort. Uh, now, again, for a, for a person who is going to have herds, they were going to need to be portable, you know, something like a movable tent. They knew how to take care of livestock. So they were, they were familiar with those concepts. The brother he was one who was involved in music. 
and I, I've often thought about that. You know, you think about some of the greats in in music, Mark, like uh, Bach. You know, who is considered to be one of the one of the greatest. Well, Bach was sitting on the shoulder, as great as he was, he was sitting on the shoulders of those who had designed musical theory long before him. And he was able to take what he had seen and learned and what had been created by others and build on it. So here are individuals who are creating musical instruments. They know what, the, what sounds they make. That's a pretty amazing thing. These are the arts. And then you have the, the last Tubal Cain, who was a forger of all implements of bronze and iron. So you have not only people who are creating instruments that can be used, whether it be for livestock or for farming, but you also have a form of metallurgy that they were already intelligent enough that they were combining different metals in order to get the best properties out of them for their purposes. So I think these, these three really short verses give us some insight as to what early humanity was really like, as opposed to the, the, the lie that we've been told many times in, in our world that we have evolved and we've become much smarter over time as opposed to what mankind was created to be in the very beginning. And it does make you wonder when you point that out, who is more intelligent? the person who develops the theories and the concepts or the person who builds upon them and does wonderful things with them. You know, it's an interesting question to consider Absolutely. who really is more intelligent. Um, so moving forward at the end of the chapter, we finish the family line of Cain and we see that the Lord gives Adam and Eve a new son, Seth, um, to fill in the void that was left after Abel's death. And there's a little interesting thought right at the end of the chapter. What is that? Yeah, the very last line of the whole chapter, verse 26, after Seth is born, we're told he, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this goes back to the point that you made earlier, Mark, of, of worship and how important worship was. Sometimes we think of worship being a modern phenomenon. You know, you have to build a church and you have to have all of this stuff. The people of the Old Testament were worshiping and they understood the importance of worship. The sacrifices that we saw early on in the chapter, the fact that they were bringing their offerings, their sacrifices, there was confession and absolution. You have this aspect of calling on the name of the Lord, which we might sort of incorporate into the idea of prayer, which is another important part of worship. So if you think about the main parts of our worship service, we have prayer, every one of our worship generally almost every time we gather together, it's going to have some sort of confession and absolution. It might have different words, but we make confession of our sins. And we receive the forgiveness of the Lord. And, and this idea of giving back to the Lord, hearing his word and giving back to him. So we have all of the parts of what we call worship today in this chapter in Genesis chapter four. And so worship is not a modern phenomenon, but this is something that Christians have been doing since the very beginning of the world. So does this mean that before this point in Genesis, people weren't worshiping? No, I don't think it would mean. So, for example, we have examples of, of Adam, uh, Adam and Eve and what we talked about in the very beginning of the chapter, recognizing the promises of the, of the Lord. But a, as you go on here, he says, and to Seth, to him also was born, a son was born. He called his name Enosh. And we're going to get into this in the next chapter, chapter five, which goes through the genealogy that goes forward. But I don't think it's saying 
that it, it started, it hadn't been done before then, but it became more of a, maybe, maybe more of a formality in the sense that it was more rigid, maybe more structured, as opposed to what we see with Cain and Abel in the early part where they were kind of doing their own thing and it was important to them, but it was more individualistic. And, and so I think that maybe the idea that Moses is trying to get across to us is that there was a form that was taking place that was sort of consistent and people were doing this consistently and maybe doing it in, in groups as well, if that makes sense. And again, if you remember, this is before the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day was sort of more of that structured form of worship of coming once a week on the same day and worshiping the Lord. And I think to me, that's what you see a little bit here too, that it's what it's expressing is men began to call on the name of the Lord as a, a more structured form of dialogue with God, of, of conversation with God. And maybe it was more of the the introduction of more prayer and worship in that sense, rather than direct communing with God, where it's a conversation type thing, where you see, you saw that with Adam and Eve in the garden, you see that with Cain here, where it's like a direct conversation, well, maybe it's more distance than that now, but it's still worship. So that takes us to the end of chapter four, and chapter five moves into another genealogical list, and this runs from Adam to Noah. So chapter five is sort of a transition here between Cain and Abel and then Noah and the flood. And what the Lord does in this chapter is runs through the family line from Adam to Noah. Now, again, as we mentioned, this is one of those chapters where you're not going to have this read as a scripture reading in church. You're certainly not going to have it presented as a sermon text, maybe even a Bible study, but it is a very important chapter nonetheless. And it's good in our Bibles not to just gloss over and skip over chapters like these. With the last few minutes that we have, point out some of the important factors and details in chapter five here. Let's start with the opening couple of verses of chapter five, which sets a little bit of a contrast between what is taking place here and what we read about in Genesis chapter one. In verse three, we're told when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image and named him Seth. So if we think back to Genesis chapter one, Mark, there we heard that God created Adam and Eve in his image. And we talked about what that meant. You took us through that when we, when we studied chapter one. But now we're told that as Adam and Eve have children, and these children now continue on, that they are born not in the image of God, but rather in the now fallen, sinful image of their parents. So this helps us to understand a little bit the doctrine of what we call original sin or inherited sin that that perfection that God created Adam and Eve with had now been lost. And this is a helpful verse in my mind in dealing with many of the religions of our world today or even other Christian denominations that believe that children are not guilty before God or that there's an age of accountability and they might be sinful, but they really aren't accountable till they reach a certain age of maturity. This verse ties in with many other verses in the scriptures that point out that when children are born, they're born in the image of their sinful parents. They do not, not have that perfection that God created Adam and Eve with in the very beginning. And it, there you, again, you see in a chapter where you wouldn't expect doctrine, you see a very important doctrinal understanding and application for our lives. And 
we did talk about how important that word likeness is in the book of Genesis. And you do see the contrast here in chapter five, as opposed to chapter one. We also see, as we trace through these individuals, we see people are living for long periods of time. Uh, is that metaphorical or how do we understand the age of individuals at this time? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, like you mentioned earlier, Mark, people might skip over this chapter because you don't want to read the big long names and, and it doesn't seem like it's really all that important. All you have is a name and a child and how long they lived. You know, So it, it doesn't seem like it's really all that critical. You might say, well, there's no doctrine in this chapter. What's the value of this? But a couple of things you asked, are those numbers metaphorical or are they figurative? There is nothing in the context of this chapter that would indicate that these numbers are figurative. In fact, as we've talked about before, we have very specific words that are used. And, and let's go to chapter five, verse one. This is the book of the generations, literally the history of Adam. In other words, this word isn't just something that is, it's not just made up. It's not trying to tell a, a neat story or mythology. This is the actual history of what took place. So as we look at the type of literature that we're looking at, this is historical narrative. There is nothing that would indicate that we should take these numbers as uh, figurative, but rather understand them as literal. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that's important. First of all, if we go through the numbers, we can actually chart everything out here, Mark, and we can see exactly how much time passes by writing down so-and-so lived so many, age, so many years and he had a son and he lived so many years and then he had a son. So we can chart out and we can figure exactly how much time was passing as we look at these numbers. So it fits nicely there. It also lines up with what we have in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. As Luke tells the history of Jesus, he refers back to Genesis chapter five and he points out that Jesus is a descendant and that promise goes all the way back to Adam and Eve to that promise made in the garden of Eden when God said, I will send one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So the numbers here are very helpful in giving us an, an idea of the age of the world as God is working through the lives of these individuals, but it also shows us that what God promised to Adam and Eve was fulfilled over time through these individuals. We don't know very much about some of them. Most people are gonna remember Methuselah for the simple reason that he lived longer than anybody else recorded in scripture. And that's all that they know about him, 969 years. But again, if we think about the fact that God created Adam and Eve to be perfect and their body hadn't had the time to develop the, the, all of the problems that we have from in our DNA, you know, in, in the building blocks of, of human beings, it would make sense that bodies would be able to live longer than what they're able to live today. Um, now, people say, well, we can live longer today than we did 100 or 300 or 500 years ago, but that's because of the advancements of medicine. The average lifespan, as Moses says, the age of, the, of your years will be 80, or if by God's grace, 90 years. And for centuries, we've been between that 80 and 90 year uh, average lifespan for human beings. Uh, so this is something that we should take a look at and say, there is value in this. What is God trying to tell me? He's trying to point out he's fulfilled his plan of salvation through the promise he made to Adam. And it makes you wonder too, when you talk about intelligence, how much a person can accomplish 
when they live 800 or 900 years old. Very hard to fathom in our minds, but you think about that in terms of human intelligence, you really wonder in the pre-flood era what people were able to accomplish, what life must have looked like. And um, it certainly, like you mentioned, was not the primitive version that we're given today in our culture. And so we see, I think what, what I see in chapter five is it really does help to have a historical background to one's faith, to see the tracing of the, the lineage here up to the time of Noah, but also then to see connections made to that in the New Testament as well, to see the historical verification of these very important foundations of our faith. We've talked about that fact from the very beginning of Genesis here, that it's a book of history. And then getting that right from the very beginning is so foundational to one's faith. And it, that continues to come out here in chapter five. So chapter five ends uh, with this individual named Lamech. And it says in verse 29 that he had a son and he called his name Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because the ground which the Lord has cursed. Talk about a bit of foreshadowing there from Lamech to his son, Noah. And it's a very interesting thought that the name Noah means rest. And uh, we will see as we move forward in our next podcast in chapters six, seven, eight, moving forward, the, the contribution of the Lord to his history, to his people, to his work, through his servant, Noah. And so that'll be very interesting to dig into. We'll be getting into the flood and probably taking that in a few segments in our podcast. So thank you, Nathaniel, for walking us through chapters four and five of Genesis here. Uh, for our listeners, for, for people reading and studying at home, don't just skip over these chapters. Uh, dig into them. Ask the Lord to bless your study through his word. Many important elements for our faith today that we see the Lord uh, speaking here in his word in these parts. Thank you to, for continuing to pay uh, close attention to our Genesis podcast here on Bird and Blessing. Uh, continue to follow uh, as us as we track through and continue studying the book of Genesis. We hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of Burden and Blessing Podcast as we continue to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Until next time, take confidence in your Savior's promise that He will always be with you, even to the end of the world.